The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Is the mission, but I want to focus this morning on the life of prayer. And what's amazing is, as we look at this, and as you see this servant acting in great faith and with great prayer, you have to ask yourself, where did he get this from? Uh, and the great thing with this story with Genesis is that you know we know he didn't like grow up in church, right? He didn't grow up in church, and then Abraham hired him, and he had already got these core values through his childhood experience with God, right? Because there wasn't a church. Uh, Abraham, in, in many respects, was the beginning of the story. And so we know that everything he learned and knew and did and practiced, he, he got by watching the life of Abraham. And so as we see these things unfold in the life of his servant, uh, it's clear that those things were imprinted on his life from Abraham. So let's uh, read through the first part of the story, <coughs> starting in verse 1. Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. One day, Abraham said to his oldest son, oh, his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked, But what if I can't find a young woman who is willing to travel so far from home? Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? No, Abraham responded. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she is unwilling to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. So the servant took an oath by putting his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham. He swore to follow Abraham's instructions. Then he loaded ten of Abraham's camels with all kinds of expensive gifts from his master, and he traveled to distant Aram Naharaim. There he went to the town where Abraham's brother, Nahor, had settled. He made the camels kneel beside a well just outside of town. It was evening, and the women were coming out to draw water. Um, I've titled this message, uh, Successful in Prayer. And uh, as we'll see in the next uh, chapter, next scene of the story, it's a lot about prayer. And it's a lot about uh, uh, Abraham's servant exercising power in prayer and really meeting with success through prayer. And uh, I believe there are some key principles uh, that we can glean from his life about prayer in our own life, things that were passed in from Abraham, right? Uh, I want to ask you to raise your hands, but just a question. How many of you would like to be more successful in prayer? I hope that's true of everyone. Uh, you know, how many of you feel like you are right now moving mountains in prayer? Uh, maybe not like we wish we were, right? And yet I am convinced that this is exactly what God wants for us. I don't think prayer is something for only the Elijahs and Elishas. 
who is this guy? Oh, this is how lowly this guy is. We don't even get his name, right? He's just, the whole story is just simply the slave guy, all right? The servant dude, all right? We don't even know his name, right? There's nothing remarkable or extraordinary about this guy. He's not a prophet, okay? He's not a holy religious man. And yet this guy exercises incredible effectiveness and success in prayer. If this guy can do this, and if it's expected of him, then I think it's a reasonable assumption we can do this. And it's something God wants for our life. So let me, let's look at some principles that worked in his life. Uh, first of all, I call it successful in prayer because uh, he prays a little later on. He prays for success. And I believe a key to his success is his prayer. Uh, but, but to get, get this in perspective, we first of all have to define what success is. Very important. Um, what do we mean by success? Uh, well, to get the frame or the context of the story, it's framed in uh, being commissioned by Abraham for this job. And uh, it says that Abraham, first of all, had been extremely blessed by God, right? Why was Abraham extremely blessed by God? Well, first and foremost, because God had promised it to him. Uh, one commentator writes that uh, Abraham enters the story on the promise of God and he leaves life with the promise on his lips. And the reality is that from beginning to end of Abraham's story, his life was defined by God's promise operating in his life. Right? And what was the promise? You guys, we should all know this now after going over this and over this and over, right? Uh, he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you a land. I will give you many descendants. Right? And you will be a blessing to the nations. Okay, that promise was the driving force in Abraham's life. And as you look through all those stories, which you don't have time to do now, but if you were to survey and review those, everything about his life was defined by these promises. And it would have been very easy. It's clear Abraham is kind of on his deathbed. You know, he can't do this mission himself. He's got to commission his servant to do it. He's old. It's his last will and testament. And it would have been easy to say for Abraham to say, you know, God's blessed me. I've been so blessed. Life's been good. And I'm so thankful for the past. And now I can rest in peace knowing that, man, my life was happy, right? But that's not what Abraham does, is it? He says, you know, it's great. This has been great up to now. But guess what? The promise isn't finished. There's a whole lot of God's promise that still is yet to come, right? And he looks ahead and he knows that, you know, the land's still not his. Uh, he has a descendant, okay? And the, the promise was for how many? Millions, right? As many as there are sand in the sea. And he's going, I got one. We got a ways to go to get to millions and billions and whatever, right? And uh, he's looking at the future. He's not just looking at the past. He's looking at the future. And he's looking at it through the eyes of God's promise. Because God's promise was the defining thing in his life from beginning to end. And on his deathbed, he still is living defined by God's promise. And he's looking into the future saying, how is the next phase of God's promise going to be accomplished? And he says, you know, my son who's single and who apparently is not very good at attracting a date because he's now 37 years old and single needs help, right? We've got to do something about this, okay? We've got to find him a girl because he's not finding one on his own. And so this is all about Abraham seeing the next step of God's promise fulfilled. And it's important to see it in that context. It's not just simply getting Isaac a wife because he's kind of a loser who doesn't know how to date, right? He hasn't learned about eHarmony or something, right? Uh, it's about God 
God's promise moving forward. And Abraham invested on his deathbed in seeing God's promise move forward. Uh, when we think about prayer in our own life, I'll tell you the, the starting place for prayer ought to be for us that our life is defined by God's promises. Okay, how many of you, and you can raise your hands on this one, how many of you believe that God absolutely keeps His promises? Okay, you're sure? You're positive? Okay, you're, you're convinced of that? Okay, now here's the next question. What promises have God made you that you are staking your whole life on? Okay, and I'm sure there are some. There better be some, right? Because really that's the defining thing of a Christian. We're people who are not... Uh, being good to impress God. We are people who are screwed up, but we believe in the promise of God. And we've banked our whole life, staked our whole life on God's promises. I love we sang this morning, a line in that song, um, My Chains Are Gone, line says, But God has promised good to me. That kind of sums it up well, right? God has promised good to me. Are you banking your life on that promise, right? That God has promised good to you. Uh, the beginning of prayer, uh, as we'll see uh, for his servant, is understanding clearly exactly what God has promised you. Because when we pray, we don't really pray apart from or separate from what he's already promised. Okay? And in fact, we get in trouble if we start praying for things that are outside of what God has clearly promised us. Uh, I, I remember talking to a lady who had uh, moved into our region in Colorado where we were, and uh, it was a lady trying to follow God, and she'd been in a church that taught a very uh, prosperity-centered gospel, uh, which I think is a distortion of God's truth. And she had said, you know, I moved to Colorado because God told me that, and I believe God speaks to us, but I don't know that God told her this. She said, God told me that if I moved to Colorado, he was going to give me a really, really nice house. And so I moved to Colorado because I knew God was going to give me a really nice house. I said, well, do you have a really nice house? No, I don't. And in fact, she ran into all kinds of financial difficulty and trouble. Right? She was basing her life on a promise, but not a true promise of God. Okay, God never promised that the goal and, and mission of our life is to be comfortable. Okay? Jesus did not die on the cross to make Americans and Westerners comfortable. All right? okay, you can cross-stitch that and put it on your wall. All right? Uh, God's promises are good, but your comfort is not necessarily good. All right? We think it is. God may not always agree. All right? So it's important that we are clear and convinced and we know certainly what God's promises are. And Abraham knew, and his servant knew. Right? And so as he moved forward, uh, he moved forward on a solid conviction about God's promises. Second thing, Abraham can't do this, and he's at the end of his life, and he's at a place where the next phase of this promise and its accomplishment and fulfillment can't be done by him. Right? So he commissions his servant to do it. And uh, uh, it is a serious thing. He, he wants his servant to swear on oath that he will do this. And uh, we won't go into a lot of the details of this, but, but Abraham is concerned about two things. Number one, he's very concerned that his son would marry a Canaanite. And the Bible's not real clear on why this is a big deal. Uh, and we really don't have time this morning to explore it. I'll let you think about it. But it was important to Abraham and to his, his descendants, actually, that they married within the family. 
okay, this is a little odd for us. You know, we don't marry our sisters usually. Uh, it's even kind of a, a weird to marry a cousin, you know. But apparently in, in this day, it was a good thing. Who knew? I don't know. Uh, so that was, that was an important value. Um, I think Abraham had a sense that he could count on family, that he knew what he was getting. I don't know. It, it's clear that the Canaanites were kind of off the charts into worshiping false gods. Now, of course, so were Abraham's family. So, you know, but apparently their gods were not quite as bad as the gods of Canaan. I don't know. But it was important that, uh, that they marry within the clan, right? So he says, swear to me that you will uh, not let my son marry a local girl, okay? We want good blood, all right? So I want you to go find somebody of good blood uh, from the family. Second thing uh, and, 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 you know, Abraham's emphatic about this point. Now the servant says, well, what if she won't come? And this is a big request. You know, this is a day when there's no internet, telephone, email, Skype. You know, um, people didn't move a lot. You grew up where your parents grew up, where your grandparents grew up, where their grandparents grew up, where you lived for generations. You didn't move, you know. U-Haul did really poor business back then, right? You lived where you lived, and you lived with family. And to go uh, several hundred miles away to really another country and say to complete and total strangers, you know, uh, my master, he's, he, he, his son's single, can't find a girl. He sent me here to bring one from here who I want to take back to this strange place to a guy you don't know. Any volunteers? <laughs> okay, this is a tough mission, right? And it's no wonder the master's going, I mean, the slave's going, you got to be kidding, right? Who's going to do this? And he raises the point, well, what happens? And he says it in a very kind way. Well, you know, suppose this girl is just not that eager to leave home and go marry some guy she's never met before, right? Um, should I take, I have an idea. I'll take Isaac there. It'll be an easier sell. He's not that bad looking, you know. He's nice. If they could see him, if I could take him there, uh, <clears throat> maybe, you know, there'll be chemistry, right? Abraham says, no, absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. Why? Well, because of the promise, right? The promise is what th- this, that this land would belong to my descendants. Isaac can't leave, okay? The promise has got to happen here. The girl's got to come here, right? So he's driven by this promise, and he commissions his slave to carry out the promise. But he gives with him the, the conviction, and again, Throughout Abraham's life, he was a man of faith, and he, he assures him, look, God will do this, okay? This is not something you have to, I'm commissioning you to do the work, but trust me, the angel of God will go before you. God will see to it. God's going to take care of it, right? And so even in this, as, as uh, Abraham commissions his servant, he does so with great faith and confidence that, this, the, that God's unfolding his purpose in this. Right, and that God's going to take care of it. That God will send an angel ahead who will prepare the way. God's going God's to put something on some girl's heart out there and <clears throat> convince her to do what's crazy and insane. All right, that's God's job. And so he, he says, look, you don't have to worry about it. God will do this. You just, you just go out there. God's going to take care of the details. You trust God. All right. Uh, as we pray and as we want to develop a more effective prayer life, we need a sense that we have been commissioned by God with a specific task and purpose. Right? So God's given us clear promises that define our life, and we know that our life is about seeing God accomplish and fulfill those promises. Right? 
And so when we pray, we have a lot of ammunition when we know God's promises. Secondly, we know that we have, like the servant, been commissioned. We've been sent out with a mission that's in line with that promise, right? And, and, and we know that God keeps his promises. We know that God accomplishes his work. And the deal is prayer gets quite simple when we're doing what we know God's going to do, when we're praying for what we know God's going to accomplish, when we're convinced that God's already given the answer, right? It makes it a whole lot easier. Where we get in trouble is when prayer for us becomes a way to manipulate and convince God that we've got a great idea, right? Anybody ever been there and done that? It's like, God, let me explain to you what my will is for your life, right? Because we don't put it in those terms or those words. But how often is prayer trying to convince God about our great ideas, right? Trying to impose on God our agenda. Um, That's not it. Prayer must come from a sense that we've been commissioned by God. And to be successful, we really do need to ask what success means. Uh, Well, success, I think, if we look at it in light of this passage, success means this. Success is always defined as fulfilling and accomplishing, accomplishing God's purpose according to his promises. Right? That's being successful. Right? That's what God calls us to. God calls us to fulfill, carry out, accomplish his work in the world and in our life. Right? And we can measure success by how well we have done his work in the world, by how well we have carried out what he has commissioned and called us to do. Right? So it's important for us to be defined clearly by his promises and to know clearly what he's called us to do. And that's easy. I mean, the Great Commission, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've, I've, I've given, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father. I will go with you, right? I will go ahead of you, very similar to what uh, Abraham promises his servant. Right? Prayer begins there, okay? And it should be always, powerful, effective, successful prayer will always be framed in that context. All right? Uh, it is not, uh, as is often the case, and, and, and honestly, I love, I love to pray that God would make life easier for me. Okay? I like praying those prayers. Right? And, uh, and certainly, if we're sick, if we, if we have financial issues, if, if there's difficulties in their life, we ought to pray for those things. Right? Uh, but, uh, powerful, effective prayer is, is about knowing God's promises and knowing what mission he has called us to, right? And praying those things into existence. Um, that's success, and that's the beginning of prayer. Second thing, uh, we see some great examples of how the servant prays for success. So he, he uh, first off, he makes preparations and plans, um, he makes this oath. Uh, he swears to follow Abraham's instructions. And then he sets to work organizing things. And it says that he, he loads up ten camels full of all kinds of wealth. Right? Uh, camels in themselves were actually quite rare in those days. They weren't real commonly used among, especially in Canaan. And uh, so just to have camels alone, it's kind of like pulling up. This is the picture. You pull up with a camel, it's like a BMW, Okay. You're making a statement, right? You know, people will come out and go, wow, cool camel. That was an awesome set of wheels there, okay? He doesn't just get one camel. He gets ten camels, okay? Now we're playing it with ten BMWs, okay, or ten Hummers or something, okay? We're making a statement here, right? Um, 
And he loads the camels up. Now, some of them, I'm assuming, had empty seats to bring the girl back, right? So he's got camels that have empty chairs for the return trip. But he also has wealth, all right? Now, again, this is definitely making an impression. And you can picture this guy thinking, how in the world am I going to convince these people to let their daughter go? And I can see him thinking this, and I'm thinking, yeah, we've got to make a good impression, okay? I'm taking all the camels. I'm loading them up with the best gold and best jewels and best riches because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing we're going to need to make a good impression here. I'm sure that's a lot of it. Uh, but along with that, what, what was loaded on the camels was really the dowry price for the girl, okay? And there's a very clear sense in which the, guy, the, the servant is acting in faith with confidence that this is going to work out, right? Uh, he's going prepared uh, with everything he ne- needs to complete it because he's confident that this is going to happen, that he's going to need to pay the dowry price, he's going to need to make the customary exchange of wealth that was done in that day um, as part of the, the marriage process. So he goes out in faith, uh, hey, and he's organized, he's prepared. Uh, in faith, he, uh, like Abraham, does not delay. Uh, he gets right on it, and he travels the far distance to Haran, uh, where uh, Abraham came from many hundreds of miles. And he gets there at dark, and, and I love this. He, he, he shows up, and, and he has a plan, okay? He has a plan. And he starts off, he says, uh, he has the, the camels kneel down beside a well, and he, it's evening, so he knows the women are coming out to draw water. Okay, so this is perfect. He needs a girl. And in this day and in this age and this culture, uh, at about 5, 6 o'clock as the sun goes down, it starts to get cool, all the available single girls would come out because one of their duties was to get water for the household. Of course, they didn't have internal plumbing, uh, so they'd send the daughter out uh, who wasn't married yet to go get water. So he's thinking, here, I have a plan. Okay, I'm going to be strategic here, and I'm going to set myself up where I'm just going to have this parade of these single ladies going by, right? But he's thinking to himself, how am I going to know which one is the right one? You know, how am I going to know? Because there could be, you know, dozens of these girls. So he, he comes up with a plan. And his plan is this. He says, please, um, he said, Lord, look, I'm standing here beside the spring, me, the well, right here, and the young women are coming out of the town. Okay, so he's explaining this to God. I love this. God, see, I'm here. They're coming. This is my request. I'm going to ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. If she says yes, have a drink. And I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you have selected as Isaac's wife. Because he's got a plan. He's thought this through. And his plan is, is, uh, is brilliant. It's brilliant for two things. First of all, uh, it really would take an act of God to make this happen. Okay? He's got ten camels. Do you know how much water a camel drinks? Anybody have an idea? Guess. How much water can a camel drink in ten minutes? Anybody know? Thirty gallons in ten minutes. Okay? A camel is the only animal that can do this. If a horse would do this, it would kill it. Okay? If you would do this, it would kill you. Okay? Okay? In fact, you can actually die from drinking too much water. Um, you, and you would need far less than 30 gallons. A camel can do this. All right? He's got 10 camels. A camel can drink 30 to 50 gallons of water. He's got 10, all right? That's 500 gallons of water potentially, all right? A girl in her right mind would say, oh, let me water your camels. Okay, nobody, okay, nobody does that. 
Okay? Now, the, the, the good news is that it's also true a camel may not drink anything. A camel can go a solid month without water. It's very possible that the camels may not drink anything. But the girl wouldn't know this. Okay? She wouldn't know. And you're, you're, you're signing up for what's far above and beyond the call of duty. Okay? So he picked a task that would not be natural. Okay, they might offer him water, but to offer to water 10 camels, nobody in their right mind would do that. So it's, it's, it's pushing the limits. It's putting a test that only God could carry out. Second thing, though, brilliance of this test, is it's a great way to test the character of this girl. All right? uh, any girl that would do this has got to be some very special kind of person. Right? It shows the kind of character that she has as a generous, hospitable, energetic, hardworking um, kind, loving person, right? Uh, it's a great way to test the character right, of this girl and find out what she's like. It's interesting, uh, as the story unfolds and the girl actually does this, a lot of similarities between this Rebecca's action and uh, Abraham, uh, as we see him in his story, exercising hospitality. A- Abraham was this kind of guy. The visitors come, and man, he jumps up, he's killing stuff, he's cooked barbecue, and he's getting them drinks. He's industrious to be hospitable. That was a value in their family. And so the, uh, the servant sets up a test to test God and to test the girl, right? So he's got a plan. Um, but beyond that, he, he, uh, he really asks God for help. And in verse 12, he says, O oh oh Lord God of my master Abraham... Please give me success today. He says, look, God, I need your help. Uh, Now, this raises all kinds of questions, and it comes to one of the fundamental issues about prayer, about how we use it in our life, and how it is or is not effective. Why do we pray? Why do we ask for help? And here's the question. Theologically, think about this. Here's a guy who already has been uh, clearly understands God's promise. Okay, Abraham's made it very clear. God's promises. God wants my son to get married because all of God's promises rest on my son having children. He needs a wife to do that. Okay, uh, God's made that clear. God's going to do the sovereign God. He made him swear on the God of heaven and earth. The big God, he can do this and he's going to do this, right? So he knows God's sovereign. He knows God has made a promise. Secondly, Abraham's made it clear, the angel's going to go ahead of you and take care of it. The angel's going to see to it, right? Why does he need to ask God for help? Is he just, uh, you know, kind of need a crutch? Is it just something, you know, he's kind of nervous? And prayer is simply kind of bolstering our faith about what God's going to do anyway, okay? Sadly, a lot of people see faith in that light, okay? A lot of people see God as a sovereign God who works and is going to do what he's going to do anyway, with or without us, whether we pray or don't pray. And therefore, prayer really has no effect or meaning. In other words, had the guy not asked for God's help, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, somehow the woman would have tripped over him or something, would have run up to him and said, hey, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the girl, right? I'm the one. I don't know you, but I want to go home with you and marry your master's son, right? Um, where, how would we answer that question? Why do we pray? If God is sovereign, if he can do whatever he's going to do anyway, what does prayer mean to us? Why do we pray? Do we pray because we believe God will not work unless we pray? 
Or do we pray just as simply as some kind of empty exercise that means nothing, right? Maybe strengthens our character or something. Why do we pray? Well, why did he pray? Well, I think first of all, he prayed because Abraham prayed. Why did he, where did he learn this from? Well, he learned it clearly from Abraham, and throughout his story, we've seen this over and over. Abraham was an intercessor. Abraham had a sense and a conviction that God would work in response to prayer. Right? That God was sovereign, that God was almighty, that God was powerful, but God chose to work and operate in the world through the prayers of people. Okay, Abraham believed that, and he modeled that, and, and now the servant is, is on, the, on the brink of being successful in his mission, but he knows he cannot go forward and find success without one key ingredient, and that is prayer. I think he prays because he is convinced God will work in response to prayer that he would not work otherwise. Okay? He needs to pray. He is convinced that he's not going to accomplish this and his plan is going to come to nothing unless he talks to God about it first. In fact, it's interesting, he doesn't even use the word prayer in the Hebrew. It just says he talks to God. It doesn't say pray. It just said he mentions to God, God, I need your help. Uh, I, I need you to make me successful in this. Right? Uh, he prayed because Abraham prayed. Uh, why do we pray? Well, one reason... Uh, we could say we pray because Abraham prayed. More significantly, we pray because Jesus prayed. Did Jesus pray? Can I get the picture of this? Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, came from heaven, returned to heaven. God incarnate prays. Why did Jesus pray? Is it because it was good for him? Because, you know, God was going to do this anyway, but Jesus just needed to strengthen his, he needed a crutch. Did Jesus need a crutch? No. Jesus prayed because that's how he knew the Father would exercise and accomplish his will in the world. Jesus prayed because he believed it was necessary to carry forward God's work and activity. John 17, Jesus prays for some very clear and specific things. Okay, and the way he prays it, uh, he, he understands that God works through intercessory prayer. That God's activity in the world is through the prayers of his children, of his son, and his son's followers, okay? Uh, why do you pray? Well, you should. this is why you should pray. This is why you should be an intercessor. This is why you should pray, I believe. You should pray because you are convinced that the success of the mission is vitally dependent on appropriating God's help. The God is sovereign. He has made promises. He will accomplish his work, but he will accomplish it chiefly and firstly through prayer. Right? Uh, you could put it this way. The unfolding of God's work in the world is an incredible partnership between the endless and unlimited power of God and the activity of weak and limited human beings. Okay? A partnership between God of the universe who is sovereign over all things and weak and limited people. And the place where that partnership meets is in prayer. Right? So in prayer, we really do move the hand of God to accomplish his own will and purpose in ways that would not happen had we not prayed. Now, you can, you can do all kinds of logical, and you can drive yourself crazy with, your, with rationalism, and saying, well, yeah, but if we didn't pray, if we did pray, but God knew we were going to pray, and therefore, you know, don't, don't make yourself crazy with that, okay? 
Okay? Don't be too smart, all right? Just, 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 this is the facts. God works through prayer, all right? And uh, apparently, it's clear that God also does not work through lack of prayer, right? Uh, he calls us, He invites us to pray. And prayer is not just a crutch, it's not just a thing, it's not just a, a pointless exercise. It is moving the hand of God to meet with success and accomplishes, accomplishing His purpose and will. It's crucial to the mission. Um, you know, what role does prayer play in our life? Uh, do we really believe this? Well, you only believe it if prayer really is the absolute foundation of everything you do, right? And honestly, in my own life, I can't say that. I can't say prayer is the absolute foundation of everything I do. There's a whole lot I do that's really not done with prayer as its base, okay? There's a lot of things I do that I, quite honestly, don't ask for God's help, right? And the real question is, if, if I do something and I didn't ask for God's help and I didn't see the accomplishment of that as answered prayer, have I been successful? Have I been successful? Right? The reality is I think we can be very successful in human terms doing our own thing. But I do not believe that it is ultimately successful in accomplishing God's purpose. I believe God's purpose is accomplished through answered prayer. Uh, Jesus said this in John 15. He says, my, in, in this is my Father glorified. Okay? God wants to work in answer to prayer, and through answered prayer is my Father glorified. Okay? It is how God operates in the world. He wants us to ask so that He can answer, and in that He is glorified. That is true success. Uh, success should be measured in our life in proportion to answered prayer. Okay? Uh, we should measure our, our fulfilling God's will by our prayer book in the column of answers. Right? Um, if you don't have a prayer book, you need to get one. If you have a prayer book that has no answers, then you've got to learn how to pray. Right? We've got to learn how to pray. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. You may ask, yeah, but you know, I do have prayer, and I do pray, and it didn't work. God did not answer. What then? Right? Well, we need to go back and study and uh, follow this guy's example. Let me give you a few more things, qualities of his prayer, why I think he was effective. Uh, I think he prays. He asks for help. Okay, that's a big deal. He does pray. He asks. Secondly, he asks on the basis of God's unfailing love. He says, please give me success today and show unfailing love to my master Abraham. What's the basis of his faith? Okay, uh, Part of it is the promise. He's praying, as I said, he's praying in line with God's commission and promise. But he's really praying on the basis of God's character and nature. And the word that's used here is a great word. It's the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D with a sound, chesed. I love that word, chesed. Great word. It's a very important word in Scripture, and it's one of the chief words to use, use to describe God's character, what God is. Uh, it's, it's defined, it's translated in many different ways. Um, it's translated um, uh, uh, unfailing love in the New Living, steadfast love in some translations, loving kindness in the King James, mercy. Uh, what does the word mean? Well, it has the idea 
of choosing freely to grant someone in need kindness by helping them. Okay, The free choice to help someone in need by showing them kindness, by helping them. Uh, probably the closest New Testament word would be the word grace, okay? God's unmerited favor. Right? It, it could be very closely identified in many respects to a mother's unfailing love for her child. Right? Child starts crying, screams out, little you know, one month old, Wah! right? To the dad, it's just you know, nails on a chalkboard, right? But to mom, it's it's the cry of help, right? And she is stirred, and she longs to meet that need, and feels this great urging in inwardly to to show kindness, right? To to show kindness to this child. Um, that's part of it, but that that kind of falls short in this, and that is that. Uh, some would argue that, well, yeah, a mother's geared and wired that way, that she can't help it, right? That it's, 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 it's an instinct. It's an instinctive kind of love. And I think it's, it's more than that. I, I'm convinced it's more than that. But some would argue that, that, well, of course, it's their nature. You know, it's, it's kind of the way they are. And so in that sense, it's not completely free, right? So if it was an orphan child, even an orphan child, uh, a woman with good mothering instincts, she heard an orphan child crying. She would be moved to help, right? So in that sense, maybe that is free. So maybe we would add to it this. It's really more like a mother's love, but a mother's love that's demonstrated to an orphan child by a guy. Okay, because nobody expects that of a guy, right? Okay, guys, we're not really known to be terribly, you know, drawn to babies. Okay, some guys are. But uh, not kind of our nature, Right? So for a guy, for your typical guy, you know, likes to play video games, likes to actually play the games where they, you know, do horrible things to babies, uh, you know, for him to, to hear a, a, an orphan child that he has no moral duty or obligation to cry out, and he responds with a mother's love and really does what's not in any way uh, expected of him, and he reaches out and he takes his child and he really loves it. And he shows chesed. He shows genuine, unfailing love because he chooses to. Because he just wants to. Because he is moved by the cry and he responds with kindness. Okay? It's a great picture of God's love. And it's interesting that God's called the father of the orphans. You know? Not the mother of the orphans. He's the father. He's a God who is loving and nurturing, but he does it beyond what's expected, right? Beyond what would be right or dutiful. Um, that's the basis of his prayer, right? Okay, why does he pray and why does he expect an answer? Only one reason. Because God is a God of unfailing love, right? Uh, this is so so throughout Scripture. Uh, it's, it's, as it were, on every other page. But let me just give you a couple of references from Psalms. Psalms 40 says, Lord, do not hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love, that's the word hesed, let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me too many to count. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly and help. Right? Calling out based on what? God's unfailing love. Psalm 44, wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up, help us, ransom us. Why? 
because of your unfailing love, right? Uh, we need to understand how much God loves us. And when we pray, and this is a great one with God, okay? This is a great, and not that we're trying to manipulate God, but the reality is it's hard for God to turn this one away, you know? You say, God, please, I need your help. I'm trying to fulfill your, your mission. I'm trying to walk in line with your promises. And I believe that you will do this as a way to display your unfailing love. And that's the basis of his prayer. Um, he prays uh, to discover God's will. All right, he uh, he prays based on God's unfailing love. He prays to discover God's will. He says, "I want you to lead me. This is important that you lead me to the person you have chosen." Right? He says, "God, I know you have a will in this. I know you have a purpose, and you've chosen somebody." He prays according to God's will. Now, this is a dangerous one in prayer, and uh, I think we often greatly misuse this. Right? And this is how we use it. We pray this. We say, "God." If it's your will for Isaac to get married, then I pray that you will work this all out, right? And we assume that God's will is something we can't know. And so if God doesn't answer our prayer, well, see, I just didn't know his will, right? I get this all from Andrew Murray. And those of you who have been through my Andrew Murray prayer group, well, you know this. He says this over and over again. Don't use God's will as a cop-out for prayer, okay? First of all, God's told you his will. All right? He didn't need to ask what God's will was. God had made his will very clear. And it's a good place to start in prayer. Start by what you already know of God's will. Is it God's will to show unfailing love to you? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so that's when we know. We don't have to wonder, God, do you love me enough to help me out? Okay, we don't have to ask that. It is God's will. It is God's will to show goodness. It is his will to show kindness. It is his will to redeem. It is his will to fix you and save you. Now, do we know how he's always going to show goodness? Not always, right? We may picture God's goodness coming as a new car. God may say, you know, an old car will teach you far more. Patience and trust. Therefore, I'm going to give you an old car, right? And and that's where this guy is. He's... He knows God's will, but he doesn't know all the details about God's will. And so he's praying that God would reveal his will and he would clearly discern it. Okay? We, we should be praying that God would make his will clear, that we would discern it so that we can pray confidently for its accomplishment. Right? Uh, if we're that clueless and vague and our prayers hide behind, well, if it's your God's will... Don't pray that. Pray, okay, God, I don't know your will, but to pray successfully, I've got to know your will because I want to pray for what I know is going to happen. Okay? I want to pray successfully. God's called us to be successful. He has called us to accomplish his mission. He has called us to fulfill and complete his will. Therefore, we know he will reveal it to us. All right, so he prays that God would make his will clear, that he would discern it, and that his plans... His activity would, would fall in line with God's will. Okay, God, believe me, God wants you to know his will a thousand times more than you want to know it. Okay? And he's trying to show you. Right? And he would love to have clear and obvious ways to make it plain to you. Right? And so that's what the servant does. He says, God, I've got a plan to make it plain and obvious to me because I'm kind of slow. All right? And last thing, last thing, he prays for very specific things. Right? He prays for unmis- uh, thing- He prays in a way that the answer is unmistakable. 
He does not pray vague. He prays specific. Okay, I pray that this lady would be crazy enough to water all my camels. All right. And there's some other corollaries to the prayer that she's family, that she's a virgin, that she's um, not married, that she's not 92. All right, stuff like that. And maybe in there somewhere he was thinking, you know, it'd help if she was like didn't look like the camel. <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't know, he doesn't say that, but yeah, you know. Um, he's praying uh, specific things, right? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, honestly, one of the reasons I don't pray specific things is because I'm afraid it's not going to happen, right? I don't want to put God to the test, in a sense. What I'm saying is I don't want to put my faith to the test. You know, I want to leave lots of loopholes, right? God wants us to pray specific things, right? Specific things for, for specific, clear things uh, so that we know the answer. Well, why? Well, we'll look at the, later at how God answers it. And, of course, uh, let me just read this verse. Before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out with her jug of water on her shoulder. Okay, she's armed. She was the daughter of Bethuel. She's family. Uh, she was beautiful. She was the right age. She was a virgin. Now, of course, he didn't know all that. The, the editor, it wasn't like she wore a sign, virgin, you know. Uh, perhaps her dress would have indicated some of that, but uh, you know, the, the, the narrator is filling in some of the blanks. But uh, God answered, okay? And, of course, God answers in an incredible way. And notice how he ends his prayer, okay? Why is this all so important? Why is it so important? Why doesn't God just do it? Why does he require us to pray? Real quick, let me give the answer right here. He ends his prayer by saying, if you answer in this way, this is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. Okay, I want to know that you really love my master, right? How many of you need to know that God loves you? And of course, we know it in our head. The Bible says it. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking, I want to have the experience. I want to have the encounter of your love. I want to know it not just in my head. I want to know it in my soul and in my being because I have experienced it that you love me. Now, after God clearly answers and he gets to the end and he knows that this is the girl, in verse 26 it says, The man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Why? Because the Lord has shown unfailing love and faithfulness to my master. I know that God loves me. He loves my master. Right? Why do I know that? Because I have seen him answer prayer. See, one of the reasons God, this is so important to God, and the reason he does this is not because he's playing kind of weird games or because he's confused. Or, you know, One of the reasons he wants to do this is this is how he builds with you a bond and connection of deep love. Right? It's how you experience him. Right? If you're not experiencing answered prayer, answered prayer, your God and your faith becomes an academic and intellectual exercise. It is void of real relationship and depth. We come to know and experience God's love and presence when we cry out to him and he answers us. And we know, you know, I count to God. He, takes a, he pays attention to me. And when I'm in big trouble, he answers, right? God, and I'm, I'm convinced that God wants to do this desperately. God, a million times more than we do, God wants prayer to work for us because he is longing to display his love to us. Right? 
He sent Jesus on the cross to display, to demonstrate his love for us. He's willing to go to huge extremes to demonstrate his love for us. He wants you to know how much he loves him. And one of the ways that he does that is is by answering clear and specific prayers in our life. Right? Let's pray. Father, we do with this servant just praise you and stand amazed at this whole thing called prayer and how you would pay attention to people like us who are really nothing. Like the servant, we're just slaves, we're just servants, we're just people doing our, our, our jobs, our task. And yet you pay attention to us. And it is your great heart to work in conjunction with us in such a way that we see answers to prayer. We see you taking notice of us as we cry out. And you do incredible, wonderful things in our life in response to our prayers. And Father, I just, I just sense that for so many people, prayers become robbed of power because we don't believe it really means anything. We don't really believe and are not really convinced that it moves the hand of God in the world. And so our prayers have become weak and empty. Uh, And we don't see the huge answers to prayer that you want to give us. Or on the other side, Father, we prayed and we, we tried it and it just didn't work. And we thought we were believing, we thought we were asking in faith and nothing happened. And so we... We just think it's not effective. Uh, Lord, I pray and ask this. Uh, I ask that you would teach us to pray in ways that truly make a difference in our life and in the world. Lord, that we would learn how to pray uh, with success, uh, pray with great answers to prayer. Because, Lord, we need to know your love. Uh, like David and the psalmist, we, we need to experience and encounter you in everyday real life, not just in our head, but where we live, where we need you to meet us. And we thank you that you long to do that. So teach us how, Lord. Teach us how to make this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.